All right. Um, well, here's where we are for those of you who are visiting or uh, haven't been with us for a while. We've been studying Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's the first letter that Paul wrote to a church. And he has been arguing throughout the entire letter that you are saved by faith alone, not by faith plus rituals, laws, works, anything we can do. Christ paid the full price. There was a group of false teachers that came in to the churches in Galatia and they had said, hey, that Paul, he's all wrong. He's teaching that Christ paid it all. Salvation is by faith alone. You need to keep the following laws. And there were some food laws and some calendar things they needed to keep. And uh, the big thing is the Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul writes them and says, no, 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 no. You cannot add those things to salvation. Now, last week we actually covered a lot of ground. We covered over 20 verses uh, from the middle of chapter 3 and a good chunk into chapter 4. Now, I skipped two verses, though, on purpose. Uh, Verse 27 and 28. Why? Well, number one, because those verses are kind of rabbit trails that take us away from the main argument. Yes, even inspired apostles can go down rabbit trails. Okay, where's the rabbit trail group? Okay, there. <laughs> so see, even Paul did it, right? Um, so he kind of t- took a little rabbit trail. But secondly, those two little rabbit trails introduce some pretty controversial topics. So I figured... Let's come back and revisit those verses today. So here they are. I'm going to actually start in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So, so here, here again, we have you're a son of God, not by works, but through faith. And then he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... And he introduces baptism really kind of out of the blue. And that raises the question, so do we need to be baptized to be saved? What's going on here with baptism? So the the one controversial question we want to ask, must you be baptized to be saved? Second issue that is brought up is this. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, for those of you familiar with the whole uh, discussion on uh, male headship, uh, are are men to be the leaders in the family and in the church? Um, This is kind of the key verse that is used for the other side that says the Bible doesn't teach male headship. There's, There's no distinction between male and female. So the question is, does this verse nullify roles between men and women? And I am going to argue for both of these that the answer is no. Must you be baptized for salvation? No. Does this verse nullify any role distinctions between men and women? No. Right? So um, here's, here's how we're going to begin. Let's take a look at the baptism question. Is baptism necessary for salvation? I want to give you three reasons 
why it is not necessary for salvation. But before we even go there, don't think that I am saying because it's not necessary for salvation, it's unimportant. Don't think I'm saying even that because it's not what saves you, whether you obey that command or not, doesn't matter. In fact, um, those who teach that it is necessary for salvation, I believe they're wrong. But I would go so far as to say you are not saved by baptism, but if you're truly saved, you'll get baptized. Okay? Why, why wouldn't you? Why would you say, Jesus is my Lord? I'm not going to obey the first thing he commands me to do. Huh? Really? How can you defy your Lord when he says, get baptized? So having clarified that, I think we still need to make the point that you are not saved by baptism. So let me give you three reasons why you're not saved by baptism. They all begin with the letter C. And my three points for the next point all begin with the letter C. Six C's today. All week I was in my thesaurus finding words. Okay, So reason one, baptism doesn't save you. Let's just look at the immediate context of the book of Galatians. By the way, um, if you look at the entire book of Galatians, Paul is arguing that you are not saved by works, not saved by works of the law, not saved by works, not saved by works. On the other hand, you are saved by faith. How many times is the word faith used in Galatians 22 times. How many times is the word baptized or baptism used? One little time. Now, that doesn't necessarily prove anything. Okay, you, do, you don't arrive at truth by simply counting up words and saying, oh, there's more here than there, therefore this is what... Uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't necessarily prove that. Only one time in the Bible does it use the word inspired. All scripture is inspired. Does that mean, well, because it's only used once that all scripture isn't inspired? No. So you've got to be careful about that argument. But here's what I do think this teaches. If salvation is by faith and baptism, and this is Paul's treatise on the gospel and salvation, don't you think he would have made it crystal clear somewhere how important baptism is? Wouldn't he have uh, said, now listen, you're not saved by circumcision, but you are saved by faith and baptism, and here's how you do it, because your eternal salvation depends on getting it right. Now use the following amount of water. And make sure you do it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And make sure you have towels. And make sure, I mean, something so essential to save us from burning in hell. Why doesn't he treat it with more verbiage? Just in passing, he mentions it once. But when he does mention it, what does he say right before? For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The instrumentation through which we become children of God 
Once again, through faith. The instrument, faith, faith. The context, the immediate context argues, the the whole letter, the context of the letter argues for salvation by faith, and the immediate context argues for salvation by faith. And then he says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now somebody might say, well, there it says that the way you put on Christ is through baptism. Now let me point out something interesting. Some interpreters would say this verse isn't even talking about water baptism. Rather, it's talking about what water baptism points to. The Spirit of God, the moment you believe, immersing you into Christ. In other words, they would say that there's no water in this verse. This is just simply teaching that you are enveloped in Christ. Surrounded by Christ. Immersed into Christ. He becomes your all in all. And He covers you when you believe. Now, actually, I have no problem seeing water in this verse. I think it's possible to interpret this as water baptism. But we see baptism the way we talk about a wedding ring. Okay? While the vows before God are what truly make you married, does anybody get married today without the symbol? Without the rings? In fact, we so associate the symbol of marriage, the ring, with the reality of marriage that we can speak of the two interchangeably. You know, let's say somebody new visits church and I get to meet them and afterwards my wife says, hey, I saw you, uh, you were talking with somebody new. They were by themselves. She could ask, were they married? Or she could ask, did they have a ring? We can speak of the symbol and the reality interchangeably. Now, in the New Testament, every believer except for the thief on the cross was baptized. In fact, here's another interesting fact. Every believer in the New Testament, except for the Apostle Paul, gets baptized the day they believe. So what that tells you is, you know, today people believe and then they get baptized five years later or they take their sweet time. Back in the New Testament times, it was the day you believed, you got baptized. So you could speak of the symbol and the reality interchangeably. And I believe that's what's going on in this verse. Okay? Because the symbol and the reality were so closely associated. Um, the two, I think, I, I think there are times in Scripture when the Apostle Paul is being precise and theological. For example, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. There he clearly says you're saved by faith, not by works, but for, works are the, the outflow uh, of salvation. Right? There are other times when he's not being precise. He's just connecting baptism 
and faith. I, I think that's how you explain Acts 2.38 when Peter preaches. What should we do? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. I don't think he's being precise there. I think he's combining the symbol and the reality all in one sentence. But when you look at Galatians, you look at Ephesians, you have to separate the two. So uh, the first argument for why uh, baptism doesn't save, is this better here? Uh, For why baptism doesn't save is the context of Galatians. Let me give you a second reason. Continuity. Did I spell it right or wrong? Continuity. Okay. Continuity of salvation. Paul brings up Abraham, first of all, here in Galatians. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and we know that that's from Galatians 15.6, when Abraham is given the promise and he believes, and when he believes, God declares him righteous. Now, in Romans, Paul goes on to say this was before he was circumcised. Okay? He says, is this blessedness then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Point. Abraham was declared righteous. He was justified. He was saved the minute he believed. And it was 14 years later that he received the ritual, and it was a ritual, of circumcision. Clear point, he was saved before the ritual. He was saved without the ritual. He was saved without the ritual. You got it? Okay. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Guess what? Abraham is the father of all who believe and are saved. Now realize, those who teach that baptism is necessary for salvation, realize what you're saying. You're saying that salvation has not been continuous over the history of salvation. Before Christ, you were saved by faith alone, not by faith plus a ritual. After Christ, you're saved by faith plus a ritual. There. The whole point of bringing up Abraham is to argue for continuity of salvation. But those who teach that baptism is necessary for salvation, you are teaching that you were saved one way before Christ and you're saved another way after Christ. Namely, you need the ritual, even though the father of faith, who is our father of faith, he was saved by faith alone, not by faith plus the ritual. It destroys the continuity of salvation. That is really the strongest argument for why baptism is not necessary for salvation. Let me give you one more. The criminal. Or we affectionately call him the thief on the cross. Right? Um, 
How many times have I done this? Thief nailed to the cross, dying next to Jesus. In one gospel, we're told he's rebuking Jesus and swearing at Jesus and cursing Jesus. And then we are told in Luke's gospel that something changes and he trusts in Jesus. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns to him and says, sorry, buddy, you haven't been baptized. Sorry, buddy, you haven't tithed long enough. Sorry, buddy, you haven't been to the Lord's Supper enough times to forgive you of your sins. No. Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, I remember talking with somebody who believed that believer's baptism was necessary for salvation. We're not talking infant baptism. We're talking believer's baptism. And I said, what about the thief on the cross? You know what they said? He was in a different dispensation. Christ hadn't died yet, so he was still in the Old Testament dispensation. Now, I didn't know enough back then, but I should have said this. So if he would have waited a few more minutes and Jesus died and then he believed, he would need to be baptized? I guess the answer is, you know, fortunately, he made it in a few minutes before and he was still in one dispensation. But if he had, you know, if he had believed a few minutes later, he would have needed to be baptized. Then think about this. While he believed in Jesus before Jesus died, Jesus died before the thief died. So the thief actually made it into the new dispensation, the New Testament era. Now, if I were arguing the other position, they could come back and say, well, it's not the dispensation you die in, it's the dispensation you believe in. And then I would just say, shut up. Really? We're going to get that nitpicky? We're going to play that game? The most important moment in history, Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And while that is happening, God gives us this undeniable sermon illustration of salvation by faith alone of salvation purchased by what Jesus was doing and nothing else and we want to mess with that and say well you know technically he was in a wrong dispensation okay now um, there you go there are three arguments and there are many many more for why you why baptism doesn't save you but and and I can be guilty of this I can sometimes get caught up in the arguments I like logic and I like the arguments and so forth but sometimes we can Win the argument and lose the point. Okay? What's the point? The Judaizers were coming into a church and saying, You Gentiles, you're second class Christians if you're Christians at all. 
We're the real spiritual ones who've been circumcised and keep the food laws. You Gentiles, you're second rate. You know, maybe you've had a rough week. I've had a rough week. Okay, And you come to church this morning and you're thinking, I haven't been a great parent this week. I haven't been a great spouse this week. I haven't been a great Christian this week. I am less loved by God than the other Christians who are better parents, who've had the perfect quiet time at 5 a.m. this morning, who've done everything right. I've failed, and I don't even want to go to church this week. Here's what you need to hear. When you believed in Christ, you were immersed Into Christ. He put his perfect spotless robe of righteousness around you. And when God looks at you, he doesn't look at your failure. He doesn't look at your sin. He looks at Christ in whom you have been immersed. He loves you. He accepts you. He adopts you. He sees you as perfect, not because of you, but because who you've been immersed into. You know, in the story of the prodigal son, sometimes we we miss some of the details. But you know what I think the most important, well, I shouldn't say the most important, but a very important thing is when the prodigal son, smelling of pig dung, repents and goes home and his father runs to him, what does he do? But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Now I imagine that boy said, oh wait, whoa, 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 I need a shower first. Let me clean up. Before you put that nice spotless robe on me. And the father would have said, no, no, no. That would ruin the picture for everyone. Come here, smelling as you are. And we'll put the robe on you. You have been immersed into Christ. And he loves you. Not because of you. But because of Christ in whom you have been immersed. Can I get an amen? All right, thank you. All right, let's go to uh, gender roles. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus, Christ Jesus. Okay. Now, the um, uh, egalitarian position says that there are no role distinctions in the family or in the church. This verse levels out uh, any role distinctions. Men are not to be the head of the family, and they are not to be the elder leaders in the church. It's not that they shouldn't be. It's that men and women uh, can... Uh, can fill those roles equally because of this verse. Now, you go, but wait a minute. What about Ephesians 5, 22? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. 
And uh, here in 1 Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Um, now, the complementarian position, the complementarian position says, God created male and female equal before God, but he gave them distinct but complementary roles. And the husband is to be the leader and the wife is to be the helper. And in the church, since the church is a family, qualified godly men are to be the elders. Okay? Now, um, the egalitarian view says there's no male or female. Therefore, however you interpret these verses, they're not teaching role distinctions. And uh, the complementarians would say, however you interpret this verse, it's not nullifying role distinctions. Now, let me give you three reasons why the role distinctions remain. In other words, we're equal before God, but there still are roles, gender roles assigned by God. Right? Point number one. Ha! Context. There's a clever one. Okay. Um, quite simply, the Galatians passage is not talking about roles. It's talking about justification before God. So you could read it this way. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. And I would add, when it comes to having equal access to God, to being justified in Christ, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's not talking about roles. It's talking about justification. Everybody, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, has equal access to God. That's what it's saying. That doesn't nullify roles. By the way, I'm told by some, guy, some people who go to Moody <laughs> that the Pharisees used to pray, I thank God that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And Paul is saying, hey, those distinctions don't keep you out from equal access to being justified by Christ. Okay, so context. Closely related, comparison. And what I mean by comparison, if we're going to say there's no distinction between male and female, you have to do it with the other terms in the verse. And the other terms in the verse would be Jew and Greek, slave and free. So let me ask you this. When you become a Christian, does it dissolve your race away? Do Asian people become... Hispanics, do Hispanics become, do blacks become whites and what? No, we still have the same race. Otherwise, we'd all just be like these gray Christians. Oh, I see you're a Christian. You must have accepted Christ. How did you know? You're gray. No, there's still racial distinctions. How about this one? You're a slave all your life. You get saved, you go to work the next day, and you get to tell the master what to do. That would be good, wouldn't it? Doesn't work that way. You still have roles at work. Right? So you don't get to flatten out your race. You don't get to flatten out your social status. 
and you don't lose your role within the family or the church. All it's saying is you have equal access to God. Okay? Now, let me introduce a, a third one. The chaos that results in taking the Galatians verse and removing any difference between, between men and women. You know, would you ever have thought ten years ago even that you would live in a state that has made it legal for homosexuals to get married? I blame the church. And one slippery slope that has led to where we are today is taking our verse, Galatians 3.28, and saying it's, not, it's, it's flattening out any distinction between men and women. In other words, if you're going to use this verse to justify um, the, the dissolution of, of roles between men and women, you have just given biblical support for homosexuality. Hey, there's no male or female. You may as well marry somebody of your own gender. There's no difference. It's a slippery slope. Now, uh, in Piper and Grudem's book, uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Piper and Grudem wrote a book. It's got to be 20 years old. And they raised this issue, and people laughed at them, saying, oh, come on. That's a slippery slope, slope argument. Re- saying that, that the church is going to buy into homosexual marriage just because they become egalitarian? Come on. So here's, in, in one of the chapters, Piper and Grudem have 50 questions. Uh, they, they are complementarian. They believe that God has assigned gender roles to men and women. And they write 50 objections that they've encountered. And one of the objections is this. Why do you bring up homosexuality when discussing male and female role distinctions in the home and in the church? Most evangelical feminists are just as opposed as you are to the practice of homosexuality. So people are coming back saying, come on, that's a slippery slope slope argument. You can't say if you buy into the feminist argument that it's going to lead to homosexuality. They warned people, and then even back then they said, Uh, They said this, some evangelicals who once disapproved of homosexuality have been carried by by their feminist arguments into approving of faithful homosexual alliances. You say, who? Well, they named two scholars, Gerald Shepard and Karen Torgerson. I don't know who these scholars are. But another one they named, I know Paul Jewett. In fact, in my, my, my library, I have Jewett's book on on why infant baptism is not biblical. It was kind of the go-to book. Piper, I believe, had Jewett as a professor out at Fuller. And Jewett is now dead, but if you Google him and you look at Wikipedia, it says this. Uh, Jewett called Galatians 3.28 the Magna Carta of humanity. In other words, it became the lens through which he viewed everything. He flattens out... Um, there's no role distinction between men and women. And where did that lead him in his later life? His last work, co-authored with Marguerite Schuster, was meant to be part of a larger systematic theology he was writing, but died before completing it. 
It revealed liberal views on evolution, abortion, capital punishment, and homosexuality. Now, are they saying anybody who buys an egalitarian interpretation will have, uh, you know, inevitably will endorse homosexuality? No. But he's saying the logic that takes you from position A to position B naturally should lead to position C. Okay? Galatians 3.28 doesn't dissolve God-ordained gender roles in marriage or in the church. Okay? But now, let me end with this. Galatians 3.28 applies to justification. But is that the only implication we should draw from it? No. Here's what this verse should do. While it shouldn't dissolve gender roles, it should eliminate racism and sexism. In fact, while Paul never called for the outright abolition of slavery, this verse, Galatians 3.28, taught this. All races have equal access before God Therefore, they all have equal value before God. And that then led to the abolition of slavery in the Western world. Okay? Likewise, I believe this verse should especially make Christians appalled at how women are treated in a huge number of of countries today, especially in the Muslim world. We should be furious at how women are treated. You know, when the coexist person tells you, well, all religions are basically the same, you should hand them this article. And um, this is something I read at the men's retreat. It's entitled, The Hardest Place on Earth to Be a Christian. It's written by a a pastor named Jesse Johnson. He says, while there are many terrible places on earth to be a Christian, Sudan, North Korea, Afghanistan, Pakistan is arguably the worst. Other nations persecute believers, but in Pakistan, the entire country has spent generations forming a worldview that values the torturing of those that claim the name of Christ. In 1973, Islam became the nation's religion and the government seized the schools and replaced their teachers and curriculum. Now the Quran is required to be read and recited in all classes at all levels. When little children learn science, they memorize passages about how Muhammad prophesied modern inventions. Um, When they learn English, they learn it through the Quran. Meanwhile, it's illegal for Christians to touch or own a Quran. So... You can't have a Quran if you're a Christian. But the only way to be educated is through the Quran. Now, 40 years later, the plan was successful. 
Literacy in Pakistan is around 50%, but literacy for Christians is less than 10%. Universities require Quran memorization for entrance, so Christians are unable to hold jobs which require an education. Christians are reduced to living in slums where they are routinely robbed and their houses frequently burned. But that's not the worst part. The worst is that their children, Christians' children, particularly their young daughters, are the targets of violence. It's estimated by the few Christian organizations that track these things that around 3,000 Christian girls between the age of 10 and 12, so our little D2 girls, are kidnapped every year. Schools make Christians wear different uniforms other than, uh, than other students, making them easy targets. They are forced to convert to Islam and marry Muslims, often becoming a man's third or fourth wife. Okay, so that's your 10-year-old. And their children are, by law, considered Muslim. Young kidnapped girls that refuse to convert and marry are beaten, physically tortured, and either killed or simply raped and left to die naked in the wilderness. But, you know, all cultures and all religions are basically the same. I think that our passage today should produce in us a holy anger that this kind of barbarism goes on against women today. Okay? I don't think this passage, I, I don't think we should read it and say, oh, let's buy the world's thing and reduce all roles. What it should do is it should produce in us a mentality that says, Regardless of your role, everybody has equal access to God. Therefore, everybody should be valued the same. And the rights of humans, Christian, Muslim, atheist, male, female, needs to be defended in the name of this verse. Okay? So, in summary... Yep, Paul took us on kind of a rabbit trail today. I blame him, right? Um, but we have learned that especially in the church, there should be no divisions based on gender, based on race, based on social status. There may be roles, but not a discrimination toward one another. And we've also learned that Baptism does not save you, but baptism is a picture that you have been immersed into Christ and his robe of righteousness covers you. 